1: Hello everybody and welcome back to the WTF1 That Time When podcast. My name is Matthew Gallagher and joining me on this Discord call for another blast back into the past is two of my favourite historians born in the 1980s, I think. Are you both born in the 1980s, Dan Thorne and Tom Bellingham?
0: Yes. I, yes. Just.
1: You're, you're just both about. really old. I'm a 90s kid. Only 90s you're, kids will remember. I'm basically your son. Wow. Well.
0: You're not, yeah, not that old.
1: Perfect. You're not that old. But today we are diving into, quite far back actually, the 1979 Dutch GP, a race which summed up the mad brilliance of the great Gilles Villeneuve. And it's that time when Gilles Villeneuve drove a lap on two wheels. H- who needs four, eh?
0: Exactly. It's about Gilles Villeneuve's unknown MotoGP career.
1: Yep. No, it's not really. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a plot twist, wouldn't it? Uh, right, Let's let's dive into Gilles Villeneuve's career up to this point he had quite an unusual path into Formula One he was spotted by James Hunt can you tell us a little bit about that
2: yeah uh so basically uh Gilles Villeneuve was was a snowmobile racer in his younger days and uh was a snowmobile world champion um and then he then he sort of transitioned to cars and did a bit of Formula Atlantic which was kind of like the uh North American equivalent of F3 if you like um and there was a race at uh, a track which I can never pronounce because it requires you to be pretty much French. Uh, Trois Rivieres, but
1: I thought you were going to say Reims because that was the only thing that came to my <laughs> mind. I'm, no,
2: no, that's easy compared to like Trois Rivieres or something like
1: that. Oh, that sounds great. You've oh. done a great job. Okay,
2: that'll do. Um, yeah, so basically it was a, it was a race which had some F one drivers in it. Uh, so you had future F one champion Alan Jones, um, Vittorio Brambilla, who was another. An F1 race winner at the time, and and James Hunt was in it, and basically Gilles Villeneuve spanked them all and won the race. Um, and and Hunt sort of mentioned this to to McLaren and uh, said like, you know, this this kid's pretty quick. You should look at him. And then he ended up making his debut for McLaren in 1977.
1: Wow. What, what a what a turnaround so a snowmobile world champion what what exactly do do you need to do in order to become a world champion is it is it a sprint race in a snow, snowmobile is it a a long endurance race how how do you go through the forest do you have to like capture wolves how does it work
2: oh i, I think it was a sort of like a cross-country almost like a rally type thing but i think they were against each other i'm not really sure i didn't look that
0: up
1: <laughs> Oh, I mean, to be fair, it was just uh, my, my brain working. So I used to love back in the day just watching like the, the alpine skiing stuff. So I just yeah, had that in yeah. my head. Anyway, um, <laughs> so after that, he then joined Ferrari, uh, which was the year after uh, he debuted for McLaren. Um, and he replaced Nicky Lauder, of all people. So n- not the, but pretty big shoes to fill, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, you
0: don't normally jump up to Ferrari soon. I think only Charles Leclerc has done that in recent times. But normally, they only hire established drivers. So for him to do essentially not even a full year, I don't know how, how many races did he do in 1977?
2: Uh, uh, he, he did the one for McLaren. And then they basically decided uh, like, even though he did really well in his one race for the team, they basically decided, oh no, uh, let, we're going to go with Patrick Tombay instead. And they basically said, no, we don't want Gilles Villeneuve anymore. So he went and tested for Ferrari and although he wasn't outstandingly quick, uh, Enzo Ferrari basically fell in love with him because he reminded him of uh, Tazio Nuvolari, who was this great pre-war driver um, who raced for Ferrari in the in the 30s and stuff. Um, so, so he was on Ferrari's radar then. And then he was quite fortunate in a way because at the end of that year, uh, Niki Lauda won the championship. And then, as soon as he won the championship, his his relationship with Ferrari had kind of disintegrated by that point. So he just quit the team immediately with two races still to go in the season. So then it was like, "Oh, we've got Gilles. Yeah, you can step in for a couple of races." And then he became the the main uh, one of the drivers for Ferrari.
1: It's not a bad uh, start to your F one career, is it really? And McLaren uh, and Ferrari. You mentioned, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty good resume, and uh, set himself up pretty nicely um so 1979 season we look towards now after he had his one year at ferrari he then was the number 2 driver to jody Schechter, who who was a a, a race winner or a world cha- he was a world champion wasn't he? Uh, no it champion? was a race no, winner. he was point. a race winner. I, I remember having a poster of uh, it was all the ferrari winners i, I don't know why i thought champion different didn't win but he, he won for ferrari didn't he?
2: Well he did in this year but at the time he joined the team he, he wasn't a world champion.
1: Gotcha. Wait, who? Schechter or Schecter, Gilles Villeneuve? Schecter. Both.
2: Schecter, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> right.
1: Okay. We're getting all confused here, but that's fine. It's uh, I mean a long time ago, nineteen seventy nine. I'm not a historian. But um but Gilles Villeneuve won races and was better than Jody Schechter at the start of the year. Uh which, you know, again, just kind of proving that it's almost like that Charles Leclerc Sebastian Vettel vibe of being given number two and then doing better than your teammate. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um so yeah, Jody Schechter was the number two, but Gilles was the better driver at the start of the year and Schechter was basically I think he was told like look if you don't improve over the next couple of races you know we're not going to consider you the number one driver Um, but then he did manage to improve and and sort of kept his status in the team but it was a little bit like well hang on a minute this this guy who we thought was going to be our championship challenger the young new guy is is quicker than him sort of thing.
0: I thought it was a bit strange actually that I was looking back at the results from this season and Villeneuve Uh, the two races he won Schecter was second so Villeneuve leading home Schecter in those races and my uh, from what happens later on in the season which I'm sure we'll go into I assumed that it was that kind of number two driver role where in a Ferrari way you just get out the way of your teammate regardless of if you're winning a race kind of like a Barry Callow or a Massa that that did that but I thought it's interesting that Villeneuve did actually win two races and they just allowed Schechter to finish second
2: yeah I mean I think it was sort of a, a kind of a weird situation where you know they weren't expecting it to happen but I suppose team orders were a little bit less strict Extreme. back then I would guess um, and also as I said like Ferrari loves Jill. so you know if you're if you're a, a driver who's loved by Enzo Ferrari and you're a Ferrari team manager you're not exactly going to say like oh yeah we need you to you know give up
1: races because you're just annoy the big boss man yeah now finally on the 90 uh, 1979 season as a kind of overview we have before we dive into the Dutch GP there was an epic battle with René Arnoux, Arnoux at Dijon is it Dion? Dijon? Dijon. Dijon how do you say it I don't know Dijon. 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 like the mustard like Let's, the mustard yeah tell us tell us about that battle
0: it's epic it's one of the most well-known battles in F1 history where Gilles Villeneuve and uh, René Arnoux uh, for Renault are battling over second place in the final few laps of Dijon, and in nowadays um it's often talked about that there'd be so many penalties because they go off with all four wheels off the track, they bang wheels, they bump into each other, they're swapping back and forth, and there'd probably be about a hundred drive through penalties for both of them but back 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 then it was just you know an incredible battle. One of the most iconic, if not the most iconic battle in F1 history that everyone remembers.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like you want a wheel-to-wheel battle. That is the first thing you go and look up on YouTube in F1 sort of thing.
1: But that is not what we're here for today, is it? We were just giving no. a, a nice little outline as to what Gilles Villeneuve was was like as a, a racer leading up to the Dutch Grand Prix of driving a lap on two wheels. So the Dutch Grand Prix was, was held at Zandvoort, but a different layout to the to the modern track. And at this point, Jacques Villeneuve was still still a title contender, still very much in the mix uh, to to win the world championship. Uh, but coming into this Grand Prix, Alan Jones and Williams were were the quickest car, and and how the grid was stacked up was Arnu on pole, Jones second, Villeneuve started sixth. Who who was Villeneuve fighting uh, at this point in in the title?
2: Uh, it was still Schechter. Um There was there was a weird point system in 1979, which is, is probably the weirdest one. System. So <laughs> you might have heard that in the past there would be dropped scores so like you're only your best 11 races over a, a season would count um in 79 it was a bit different it was your best five results or your best four results from the first seven races i think and then your best four results from the last eight races of the season so if you had
1: so only eight races counted yes yeah. so and uh this is why it, that is ridiculous.
2: So although Alan Jones and Williams were the best team in the second half of the season, because they'd scored basically no points in the first half of the season, they couldn't win the championship because he could only score like a maximum of of 36 points, if wow. you like. So it was really weird and like really bad if I'm
0: honest. So it's awful. So it was, Imagine uh 2013 when Vettel did that nine in a row
1: and, yeah. and he
0: didn't win the title because only four of them counted. That would be insane.
1: What what was the what was the reason behind it? Was it to try and keep the championship close, or why would they put such a strange format in?
2: I think it's a reliability thing because cars were so unreliable back then. Um, it wasn't common, and well, until quite recently in 1979 terms, that teams would actually do every race. So, um, you know, if you counted every race of the season, then it would be more about who sort of turned up and could finish than who was the best driver.
0: Yeah, you could get a like, a Minardi as long as it just finished the race. You'd be getting like fifth and sixth every race. Whereas uh, it was that very much that era where you, even the top teams, especially when you go onto the turbo era, where you'd either win or have a massive engine blow up.
1: Let's turn our attention now to the race. So, as I mentioned, Arnu on pole, Jones second, and Villeneuve down in sixth. And uh, Jones takes the lead at the start with Arnu and Regazzoni colliding which promotes Villeneuve up to second so a, a decent start from the lad
2: yeah he was always good at starts um you watch sort of pretty much any race from the late 70s early 80s Gilles Villeneuve will come out of nowhere to be like at the front even if
1: he's starting like 11th <laughs> speaking of 11th lap 11 was when he had an amazing pass around the outside of Jones to take the lead and then managed to kind of bridge a, a small gap um and the Ferrari had the power, whereas the Williams was better in the corners. So it's it's quite, I guess that's quite a nice thing. That kind of reminds me of probably not as extreme, but the the sort of the LMP ones and how you know that when they were racing, I think it was around Silverstone, was the Toyota was really quick in some areas, Um and, and whichever car they were battling was, was you know completely different. I, I imagine it was probably the Porsche. But yeah, hundred percent.
0: That's the yeah. that's what I remember from that kind of peak LMP one era as well, where where you had different different attributes and they were better in certain things and it it made for really good racing and this was the same I guess that the Williams could catch up in the corners but Ferrari would have the power on the straights which of the old school Ferraris that was very much their thing wasn't it there's that famous quote isn't it something like is it aerodynamics uh, for people that can't build a good engine something like that the Enzo Ferrari quote
2: yeah it was um yeah the the pass he did Zandvoort back then was a really fast track he basically had the first corner which was like it is now it's sort of a a slightly banked hairpin and then it, it went down to another hairpin and then whereas the modern track sort of twists around and has a few more slow corners the old track was basically just a high speed sort of loop back around to the start finish line with a sort of token chicane in the middle to try and slow them down but it was quite fast so uh, so the Williams would be better at the hairpin and the chicane whereas the Ferrari would then just just fly down the straights but the uh, the overtake he did for the lead was around that outside of the first corner and uh, I can remember Murray will had I I chose this race to to talk about because I saw uh, you Tommy uh, chatting with Jimmy Broadbent on Twitter about murray's magic moments uh the vhs
0: <laughs> that's so funny uh, i've got that i've got it? that in my notes as well and that's what i was going <laughs> to say that this this is the first time i was introduced to Jill Villeneuve was that video
2: yeah me as well uh, same thing and i can just remember just murray walker's commentary just going and he's and Villeneuve's going for it around the outside of tarzan an incredible maneuver um yeah, it's, a, it's a really good pass, to be fair. It's almost, he's not close to him. He sort of lunges into the braking zone and sort of drifts around the outside. It's an amazing, amazing pass.
1: <laughs> People need to look it up then. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we, we continue on into the race. So lap 47, Jones caught back up and Villeneuve spins under pressure. Well, was that a particular mistake from Villeneuve or just completely out of the blue? And I mean, Villeneuve was well anything like Jacques I imagine quite a, a crazy a crazy driver in terms of his yeah. uh, his driving style yeah, yeah I watched it
0: back doesn't he get his wheel on the curb and yeah. this is this is back when curbs were not designed to fly over now they're very flat aren't they but yeah. curbs back in the 1970s were a way to almost put up a wall to say you're not going off track limits and they were huge really yeah. high <laughs> and if you even just dipping a wheel on them would would could even break your suspension or you know send you off flying off you would you would know about it if you even put a slight wheel on the curb
1: yeah so now we we go towards uh, what we have been we've all been waiting for the crazy lap so two laps after his spin Gilles left rear uh fails on the pit straight and he spins off at the first corner he gets going again reverses onto the track and drags dirt absolutely everywhere drives back to the pits flat out because, you know, they're a Villeneuve and Villeneuve's either drive completely and utterly on the limit or they crash, right? Yeah. Um, and the car disintegrates and is, is then on two wheels for most of the lap and then retires in the pits. What what was his thinking? What, why, why would he continue on two wheels? Surely he saw that maybe there, there there wasn't a chance of him continuing. This
0: is back with the Murray's magic moments. I just remember him in the, in the gravel and Murray, Murray Walker's proper like, what's he doing because he's looking down at the cockpit and you just think well he's out why isn't he just getting out the car because he's got a massive puncture he's like you say just past the start finish straight so he'd have to do an entire lap even if he could get back and then the fact that he reverses back onto the track and his um his tire is deflated but it's also kind of like flat like a carpet if you like if you're hanging, a off, carpet, the rim, basically, hanging yeah. off the rim and because he reverses in the gravel it just essentially chucks all the gravel and dirt back onto the track um like <laughs> spinning it round and yeah he gets going again and you just think why is he doing this because there's absolutely no way that he's going to be able to get back to the pits and it'd be fine especially when like you say the car disintegrates and he's now on two wheels but it's just it's just an iconic moment and it's it sums him up perfectly, I think.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's that classic thing like now when a driver gets a puncture, you'll always get Martin Brundle or someone saying, oh, the trick is to go back slowly because if you go too fast, the tyre will delaminate and tear apart the rest of the car, um, which Gilles did the exact opposite of at the time. He just basically tried to drive back to the pits flat out. Um, the tyre eventually sort of comes off the rear wheel, brakes at the suspension and is hanging behind the back of the car with sparks coming off of it so because the back rear of the car doesn't exist anymore it's sort of squatting down so his front right tire is waving in the air and murray walker's going like oh he's doing a wheelie down the straight and he's still (laughs) driving flat out with his arm up in the air so people can see him and he's just giving it everything to get back to the pits um and then he gets back to the pits and he's expecting it to be fixed and the team just say look no this you you can't go back out it's broken and he was apparently he was quite sort of confused as to why his car couldn't be repaired because he just thought oh yeah i'll fix it and go back out five laps down whatever and just keep going because he just wanted to be the fastest driver at every corner of every lap of every race sort of thing
1: <laughs> so that explains why he tore around and tried to <laughs> tried to continue is that he thought his car could be repaired but i'm sure there's footage that people can find online where it kind of proves that his car was absolutely not repairable yeah the whole uh, by any stretch of the imagination the whole
0: rear wheel is hanging off isn't it the the um like the the whole like mechanism of the rear wheel ends up just getting completely ripped apart and then it's hanging behind and like being dragged along the back like it's being towed along it's insane
2: And like these days, that would be a massive penalty for like driving a car in an unsafe condition and they'd get reprimanded and fined and all sorts. But it's quite funny back then uh, when he's retiring in the pits, Murray Walker just goes, oh, and this is why everyone loves Gilles and his never give up attitude. It's like (laughs) a completely different attitude now where people would be going crazy if someone did that.
1: (laughs) It's amazing how it can all change uh, uh, from then to now. So the race finish, Jones wins easily uh, after Villeneuve's mistake, Schecter finishes second and lafitte finishes third and only seven finishes as is normal uh for those kind of yep. <laughs> 70s 80s races and uh as you, as you mentioned dan you know uh it probably would be well firstly there was no social media back in the late 70s but uh if there was i still think that as you say I, that the whole tone of voice and you know just the, the reaction would have been completely different people would have been Saying he's a hero and oh my goodness me, you know what an amazing thing. But had he then crashed into someone or a marshal or whatever, uh, it would have been a completely different story. So, as and it also kind of sums up as as the kind of been recurring theme of this podcast that Villeneuve's just been very much a, well both Villeneuve's have been very much just drive to the absolute limit and probably crash. So yeah, um, yeah, sums up their legacy pretty well. Did it cost you a chance at the championship? possibly
2: this is this is where it gets weird because of the, the strange point system but but at the next like you know if he'd won that race um with Jones second and Schechter third that's that's a big point swing in Jill's favour but then because only four of the races would have counted it might have only been worth an extra two points in the grand scheme of things and then at, at the next race he could have uh prolonged the championship by overtaking Schechter at Monza and winning the race but he sat behind him and that gave check to the championship because that they were the team orders that that he'd been given um so it I, I don't think it would have cost him the championship because i don't think Gilles had any intention of winning it because he, he very much knew that his role was as the number 2 driver um and lived up to what he was what was expected of him
0: it's crazy that gil um this is one of the the craziest things i find about him is he is this Crazy maverick driver that does these things like wheel wheel banging and uh you know the moments like this one where he's got two wheels and he's still carrying on and doing absolutely incredible things. And normally with those kind of drivers, they are a bit hot headed and have that other side that to it, like a street, yeah. like a Senna or a Schumacher or a Vettel. Or, you know they've all done it in their career, but it is amazing that Gilles always respected the team orders and even you know despite being this crazy driver he would happily sit behind his teammate at Monza and just cruise home even though I looked back at that probably would maybe even was faster and that was his essentially his chance at winning the title I mean look what Hamilton did in uh, 2016 with Rosberg even though they didn't want him to do that Um yeah it it's, it takes a lot for a driver to see that that's their only chance to win. Like that's the championship there in front of them, and to essentially stick behind and respect the laws. Yeah, <laughs> what the team give you. Yeah,
1: right. Finally, gonna pose the question to both Tommy and Dan. Where where does Villeneuve stand in terms of the best drivers never to win a title? You two are both there uh, in good stead in historical knowledge. Talk to me. Where does he stand?
2: it's it's a really tough one this because uh cuz Gilles Villeneuve is one of my favorite sort of historical drivers like i i've read loads about him and i absolutely love him uh but i i just don't think he had the attitude to to win a championship i think in terms of pure speed um and and driving talent he'd he'd be up there with any any f1 driver champion or not but i think in terms of a complete package of a driver who hasn't won a title there are others ahead of him like the late Sterling Moss who we lost sadly lost recently he's a head and shoulders above everyone else in that respect I think um trying to think of other drivers who were probably better like I mean even probably Felipe Massa I would say as a package was a better driver than Gilles Villeneuve but Gilles basically had one or two uh plus points that he was absolutely incredible at but yeah, I, I don't think he was necessarily championship material.
0: He seemed like a bit of a a cult hero to me, like maybe like a Montoya or a Nalasi where people will remember it. And, and one thing that uh, people will always need to remember is when you watch footage of classic drivers, it's very easy to watch a highlights reel of five or six moments over 10 seasons and think they're the greatest driver of all time. And there's no doubt Gilles Villeneuve was incredible and had unbelievable raw speed but with those because it's not our era we we obviously don't talk about Gilles Villeneuve uh the races where maybe he just finished sixth or seventh and had a very calm race um and and you've got to remember that so yeah it's difficult but he's isn't am I right in saying Villeneuve They often spoke about it and he said that he never really cared about the championship. It wasn't really that him bothered by it. It It's strange for me because Schechter, who obviously won, went on to win the title that year, he's almost one of the most forgotten champions, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. And that's probably the fact that he didn't do all this crazy stuff. So you'd argue that Villeneuve actually is a lot more well-remembered than Schechter yeah, because of his crazy antics that he's, you know, one of the coolest drivers ever, there's no denying, did these amazing things. And the fact that he didn't win a championship probably doesn't really matter because he is more well-remembered than some of the forgotten champions like Schechter.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's quite ironic about Schechter because at the start of his career, he was renowned for being uh, wild and crazy. And I think there were other some of the other drivers on the grid thought he should be banned from the sport. And uh, it was only once he sort of matured and calmed down a bit and um, that he could put together a championship campaign to actually win it. And then another thing as well was that the year after he won the title, the Ferrari was absolutely hopeless, as in like could barely score points hopeless. And Schechter was absolutely nowhere, whereas Gilles was still giving it absolutely everything. So, you know, Schechter's won the title... And then faded almost instantly out of out of the sort of front page news. Whereas Gilles was still sort of doing it and was up there, so it, it leaves him with a, a better almost legacy in the sport, even though he didn't didn't win it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, there you go. That is that time when Gilles Villeneuve drove a lap on two wheels. Thank you so much, Dan and Tommy, for your input. And we will be back for another That Time When very soon. Obviously, make sure to rate us five stars because we deserve absolutely nothing less. A uh, bit of a passenger on this one, just purely because history, 70s, not my cup of tea. But uh, Dan and Tommy, thank you so much for for your historical input. And we'll see you next time for another That Time When.
2: Goodbye! Bye! Bye. Bye.